0: Welcome to season five of the Do More Good Podcast. You're listening to the Do More Good Podcast.
1: The Do More Good Podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good Podcast. Do More Good. Do Good, do more. do more Good Podcast. Do More Good Podcast. That's what you want me to say.
0: Yeah. Okay, You're listening to the Do More Good Podcast.
1: James here we are episode number 70 of the do more good podcast how are you doing
0: I'm good Kenneth I'm very good we've just been talking about how this is my ninth meeting of the day and the one that I have been looking forward to the most I have to top this off with but yeah I'm good I'm good how about you yeah, I'm all right,
1: actually. Yeah, we, we should just elaborate on that. You did offend our guests just as they were coming in. You were like, this is the night," <laughs> You know, which was a great start to it. But no, other than that, I'm, I'm, I'm really yeah. good. I've had, a, I've had an excellent, excellent day, actually. Really good day. Team was all good. I Just as I said to, to you guys before we started recording, just had an amazing session with a, a conductor
0: talking about her career. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm buzzing. I'm excited for this conversation. Good. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I-, I wish we could have started that conversation before. I'd noticed that somebody else had joined the room when I was talking then. Um, <laughs> but talking of going back... That's going to be a bit of a theme of our chat. Have you ever gone back to an organisation you worked at before, rekindled an old romance? I know you've been flirting with a bit of Clubhouse recently, so it's good to see you back on your in your natural home on the podcast, Kenneth. <laughs> you know what? We, we did talk about this. And
1: yeah, I, I, had a, I had a story early in my career where actually the first kind of proper company that I joined... I left once, went somewhere for six months, then went back and then give it another year, year and a half and then left again. And the second leaving was a bit of a mistake. Like I moved into the field of insurance. And yeah, like this, this thing does not even exist on my CV anymore. But I lasted about two months. And then I was like, I've made a massive mistake. Can I go back again? So I went back to the same company again. So returned twice. And the only thing, you know, that embarrassing day of walking back into the office, knowing that most people had contributed to your leaving guest they thought they wouldn't see you again. (laughs) You know, they were were waving and smiling when they were all like giving it fist pumps behind your back. But yeah, walking back into the office that first day was embarrassing. But other Uh than that, I'm, I'm not... No, other, no, no Did you example. go back to
0: the same did you get the same desk? Had they recruited no. back into your old position or did you just no, They hadn't. They hadn't recruited back into my position. How can so... you replace yeah, Kenneth exactly. Foreman? It
1: was still there. <laughs> what about you? What have you've got some stories
0: of? Well, I've of done Yeah, life. I've done the I've done the big one that I I've referred to before. I joined Sue Rider in about 2013, I think it was, and then been there ever since, apart from a year in the middle where I went to marry Curie. And uh <sighs> You'll appreciate what a big what a big deal that is. I mean, the rivalry there is is fierce. It's like I don't know, Rangers and Celtic E17 take that. You know, it's like jam and cream on a scone versus cream and then jam. I mean, it's fierce. You have to keep those people apart at at convention. So I have crossed the divide. Uh, yeah, that yeah. was big. Um, I don't know if there's any bigger ones than that. Maybe our listeners well, can write in. You know, what are the big rivalries in, the big in rivalries. charities? Exactly. Yeah.
1: But you did mention it earlier, James, and we just have to give a, a shout out. As you say, we featured on our first Clubhouse session this week. A few people that I've mentioned Clubhouse. To they've said, oh, you're you're part of that gang, are you? But actually, it was a really positive experience being on there. I know it was something that friend of the show Kirsty Marins has started with Justine and Helen. They've started a the charity club on, on Clubhouse, which is every Tuesday, I think, at twelve thirty. Mm-hmm. A range of, of guests on and talk about topics. So I was on there talking about yeah the the bringing back of events,
0: which is obviously quite a big deal for a lot of people but that was really exciting and actually you tuned in didn't you? I did I tuned in and I kind of lurked at the back yeah I didn't put my hand up or ask any questions it was about my fourth meeting of the day I think so I just <laughs> uh, I just sat quietly and listened to you
1: oh yeah. you've, you've done that before
0: right should we crack on let's do that Our guest this week is the celebrity CEO of one of the UK's best known, most loved and largest charities. With an education in biochemistry and a postdoctorate and PhD in neuroscience at UCL, she took her first step into the charity sector, joining the Wellcome Trust in the late 90s to support their communications work on public engagement. She then went on to join the British Heart Foundation in 2003, and her work over the following 12 years would cover communications, policy and strategy before finally departing the organisation in 2016 whilst Executive Director of Strategy and Performance. Her next career move would see her take on the Chief Operating Officer role at the Institute of Cancer Research. There she had a range of strategic and operational responsibilities with more than a thousand scientists and staff and more than 140 million pounds in income. Then in February 2020, just before the pandemic struck, she made a triumphant return to the BHF as Chief Executive Officer to lead the team in what many have referred to as the most difficult year in modern history. It was great timing. So a vision to free the world from the fear of heart disease, the BHF aimed to raise money to research cures and treatments so that they can break heartbreak forever. There is no doubt it has been a year of up and downs, but we are extremely excited to hear more from Dr. Shomay Griffiths. Welcome to the show.
2: Hello well thank you for having me on your 70th episode and James your ninth meeting of the day that means a lot it's very special.
1: <laughs> Excellent on, he is never gonna live that one day. <laughs> I love it I love it. Charmaine thank you so much for for giving us your time this evening to join us we, we do really really appreciate it. As we've just said there I mean it's been it's been a difficult year so we, we've, we've been asking more this question of most of our guests recently H- how are you doing at the moment how, how's the last few weeks and months been.
2: Oh, thank you, Kenneth, for asking. I'm all right, actually. I'm good. I think I'm feeling the green shoots of spring um, seeing them outside in real life in the garden and beyond. But also, um, as we start seeing the vaccination programme roll out and, and seeing family members and loved ones get vaccinated and colleagues are like starting to see the kind of exit come become real. So I think that green shoot kind of spring feeling is, is strong at the moment for me. So, yeah, I'm well. Thank you. and hope you guys are too. It's been tough, hasn't it? What a tough uh, year for all of us personally and professionally. So, yeah, welcome a discussion. Nice to take a moment to reflect together as well after such such a turbulent year.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We we typically, well, for the first, what, how many episodes, James? We recorded them in, in pubs and cafes and, and around London and obviously have had to do a lot of this through Zoom over the last year. But we're looking forward to, to getting back to that soon. But Charmaine, I guess the first question we heard a lot about your background there and... Probably not a typical background for, for a lot of people in the sector, particularly in fundraising, which we know a lot of our audience is in. Can you can you take us back to the beginning? How did how did a life in the in the charity sector develop for you? I think that first role at Welcome Trust.
2: So I've always been passionate about health and human health, actually, and making a difference to help save and improve lives, and that kind of informed really my choices and doing a science uh, degree and getting interested in PhD in neuroscience and focusing on medical research and that kind of drive in me came from seeing disability and and losing loved ones really early in my life so it's really profound for me. So I was always just really drawn to organisations that made a difference in the world and made a bit of a dent in the universe. And I worked at the Wellcome Trust whilst I was doing my PhD and postdoc on science engagement. And it was really that exposure that got me interested in how, to, how the, the world of translating scientific discoveries and big research breakthroughs into real benefit for people came alive. And so when the British Heart Foundation were looking for someone to help, at that point way back when in 2003, to help them understand what their research funding did and how it worked to help people with heart and circulatory disease. It was really a a natural opportunity for me at that point to step away from the lab and start to get involved in an organization that was closer to people and had more of a role in the wider ecosystem of taking research, not only funding brilliant research, but helping take that and then influence the ecosystem to get the, the benefit to people as quickly as it could. So that was a bit of a no brainer. And um, I've talked about it before. It was a bit of a head and a heart decision. Mm-hmm. I lost both of my granddad's to cardiovascular disease and my grandmother to a stroke. So it's deeply personal for me, as a cause. And that combination of being really interesting and also really me being really passionate and being really personal for me was probably my entry point into the BHF. And I have to say, it's a really magical organisation. It, it, it was from the start. It's it's changed a lot. It's grown a lot, but the core of what it does, which is to make a difference for so many people, we've got seven point six million people today living with it in the UK alone. That remains absolutely true. And I think there's something quite special about the spirit of the organisation as well. It's very can do very um kind of a bit of fun in how it carries itself as well so yeah it's a real privilege to have been able to come back and um, yeah, be part of the team again
1: and just going back to those those early days in terms of your educations neuroscience was your undergrad and then you did phd in some other field related to that i can't remember specifically what it was yeah did you know from that stage that that, that science and which career path you would follow or was that just something that you kind of fell into as you as you went through that process
2: I always love science I love the actual the art of science the discovery it's like being a mini explorer in a test tube isn't it you're just at the forefront of knowledge I think it's fantastic so I knew I wanted to do my I did my undergrad in biochemistry at Bath and then my PhD in neuroscience at UCL and then I stayed on for a few years of postdoc or I got in touch with the tr- trust and other other uh, organizations and I always knew I wanted to do that to, to to be a scientist to to be an explorer and all those kind of things it was just just fantastic. And it is, you know, it is just such a wonderful discipline and just so fascinating. You get a lot of freedom, met my husband, you get so you know, clearly additional bonuses as well as a PhD, there you go. So great experience. But yeah, I always felt I wanted to to do science. And I think the there was that natural point that came in my postdoc where I'd finished um a big project and piece of work and published papers. And it was a really good time actually to think about what I wanted to do next, whether to kind of almost double down and stay as an academic scientist working at UCL or similar for a while, or whether to explore anything else. So that was probably the node where I was really thinking about how to, how I could continue learning, where I could still continue to have an impact and starting to really think about the, the broader kind of health environment. And that really attracted me after the Welcome Trust experience to the BHF Because they just, you know, they do so much. For 60 years this year, actually, the BHF. it's um, one hundred and sixty one, So it's got this amazing track record of being behind some of the best research and best discoveries. That was really compelling to me from the start. So, mm. yeah. Um, and still, you know, a bit of a geek today, for sure. I love science. I love data, technology, uh, as well as being a fully rounded human being. So... Yeah. <laughs>
0: I love that story. I mean, you talk about your grandfathers as well, and that's deeply personal to you. And coming through from the science side, you talk a little bit there about the ecosystem and that rounded view of things. How have you found that seeing it from that side? That's been an interesting rise through your career. Has that been different for you? Maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe people do come through the science side more than I know.
2: Well, it's a good point, actually. So there are some brilliant scientific chief execs. So Jeremy Farrer, who heads up the Wellcome Trust, is one. He's he's fabulous and run large and complex research institutes. But you're right, there are other brilliant colleagues. In particular, I'm, I'm going to call out the network of charity chief execs has been phenomenal this year for me in terms of support, and I, I hope I've supported them in return. But yeah, right, there's, there's a full mix, isn't there? People who've come in from a commercial experience, who've kind of grown up through the charity sector and other. So do you know how I found it? I think it's been a real privilege, actually. I think the I didn't really have many perceptions of what the charity sector would be like when I left the lab and joined it, but I am continually inspired and impressed by it. It has a bit of magic about it, as your podcast is called, people doing good in the world. It's a way in which we take people's emotion, energy and commitment and change that into genuine impact for people's lives, um, mostly. So I think it's a very special part of the world. And yeah, I've, I've had nothing but good experiences and been inspired by my time in the sector, actually.
0: And you must be able to talk with real authority on on what you invest in as well. That must help as a, you know, that knowledge that you have allows you to really delve into the details.
2: It it does help, for sure. Um, Being able to keep up with the science on some of our site visits, or at least some of it, is is definitely an advantage. And actually the discipline of science, which is kind of having a hypothesis, testing it, evaluating your results objectively and learning. And that kind of cycle of things honestly applies itself to life in general. So the the kind of discipline of science is, is, is really broad. What I would say is that I've been blessed with working with fantastic teams through all organisations I've been with, actually. And I think probably my biggest learning as I've spent time in teams and organisations is, of course, the specialist skill is useful. But actually being able to work with people and draw great people from different disciplines together and get the best out of each other as a team. And I'm really fantastically blessed to have a fabulous exec team it's just a pleasure to work with at the bhf so we've got the expertise we need around the table collectively to tackle pretty much any issue for sure that's been tested and met over the last year in in spades
1: Mm. and we will certainly get to the challenges of the of the next year I guess, Charmaine, we have uh, quite a few people who are listening to the podcast and might be listening today who've, you know, relatively early in their career. And one of the great things that James and I love about doing this is we get to do a little bit of digging on our guests before they come on. And of course, you know, a bit of LinkedIn stalking, looking at what their background is, you know, where, where they came from. And what have you found, Kenneth? Well, no, I'm not, <laughs> yeah, I've set that up now, haven't I? This sounds you like something really. Good. <laughs> But, but my question was, I think what, one of the surprising things about looking in your background was just, you know, you joined BHF in the first instance, a, a manager position, spent 12 and a half years there, obviously, and I think it was five roles across that time, but really kind of climbed up the organisation, you know, manager, head, head, director, director, exec director how was that experience for you in terms of joining an organization and then obviously having the ambition and, and wanting to progress can you can you talk to us about that
2: absolutely so i'm lucky to have great support and bosses who encouraged me to kind of grow and develop. I'd so say I left the lab on a Friday, had a weekend off, and then joined the press office team on a Monday. But the first time my phone rang, it was Sky News wanting an interview with the medical director, and I had no idea which way it was up. So it was a very sharp learning curve, I tell you, but great supportive managers. I hope that the people who across our sector and I know I hope this for BHF have a great experience in a, a place where you can grow and try new things experiment test on new, you know new jobs get involved in things that allow you to find the things you're passionate about in life so I'm a huge fan in life of believing it's a short little thing you have to do the things you love and love what you do and trying to work out what that is and sometimes that's about progression but sometimes it's just about finding things you enjoy so my experience of those moments was being encouraged to get involved in projects, um, to push myself to to, to grow in terms of experience. And also, I've also really loved learning. That's been a part of uh, my life and still is today. I'm always um, curious about things work. So finding opportunities to either within BHF or outside of the organisation by becoming a trustee for another uh, smaller charity or getting involved in projects outside is just a great way to grow experience. About halfway through my BHF career, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship from the Cranfield Trust, where I'm now chair, actually, as of December last year, which allowed me to do an MBA on the side over a couple of years. So it was an exec MBA in addition to, to working. And that was a transformative experience in terms of broadening my kind of breadth of skills and understanding the world, but also confidence in able to be able to take the next steps as a leader and a manager as well.
1: Makes a lot of sense. I think we heard that before, like people getting into a role and being encouraged to experience new things, and actually managers saying, "Look, I would love you to stay in my team, but I want the best for you. Go on and experience other things and, and become more well-rounded." Was there any key individuals in that time, Charmaine? Was there was there mentors, or were you aware of having a mentor and helping you to to, to kind of craft your path, so to speak?
2: So there are many, actually. I'll probably start and do the start and end of the journey. So at the very start, the director of policy and comms at the time was a lady called Betty McBride, who I'm still in contact with, who is a fantastic character, larger than life, fierce, funny, passionate, and broke a lot of rules, I'm sure, and encouraged rule breaking. So she was coming out of the lab you know, everything is around control and detail. She was a fantastic person to watch in action and learn from, and definitely she mentored and developed me. So it was a pleasure to work with her for many, many years. And in contrast, the chief exec at the time was a fabulous man called Peter Hollins, who I'm still in contact with as well. He was balanced and measured and very considered, and I learned a lot from him about doing things at the other extreme almost. It was really fun to see them in action. More latterly, there have been so many people through my VHF experience, whether it be formal or informal mentoring and coaching, just fantastic. In moments where I've been thinking about what my next step is or thinking about how to develop or thinking about where, where I might grow, because we all, we all have those points every day. I've always been touched by the openness of people to, to give you feedback, actually, or to give you time. So whether it be our trustees or chairs at VHF or others and just getting interest in people's jobs outside of my own area, I can't think of a time when someone's kind of not accepted a cold call and given half an hour just to talk through either a thought or open up their world to me, um, which is just, yeah, I, I hope I get the chance to return the favours uh, over the years as well. Fantastic.
0: Yeah, nice. And actually, you get so much from doing that yourself, don't you? I mean, I'm very rarely called upon to do that. But whenever I am, you know, you always feel the benefit from chatting through what you've what you've done as well. So. Kenneth talked a little bit there about mentors and younger people in the sector coming through. It felt like you touched on a couple of really key points there that maybe you might suggest to younger people coming in about a love of learning and constantly wanting to learn. Obviously, you know, we talked about your background and then that approach of that kind of scientific approach around testing, learning, improve, try another hypothesis, go with that. And rule breaking. You added that in at the end would be kind of your three bits of advice, maybe to somebody who has Eyes on the big job, in later on in their career. Look at
2: that! You're writing the book. Look at this <laughs> rule breaking. <bigger. laughs> Maybe
0: someone would come to me for advice, eh? Yeah,
2: <laughs> well, it sounds like you've got it. Uh, do you know those things sound great? They sounded better when you said them than I said them too. Well, what I probably add to that as well is curiosity about the world outside your organisation. I think some of my best learning or the things that surprised me or interested me most have been having a look outside and just making sure you are always kind of keeping a view on whether it be people in different countries or organisations doing similar things or different sectors, being curious about what's going on in the world. And kind of always, there's there's always a way in to kind of finding out a bit more or seeing if someone's doing something better. Why is that? That, Whether it's about innovation and new products or whether it's about how people do things or different cultures, I think being curious about the world beyond your your
0: organization is really important yeah and we're so we we like to pat ourselves on the back in the charity sector about being quite collaborative and sharing learnings and quite often we'll get calls and can you share your results on this and can you talk to me about your numbers on that and we're lovely and we're brilliant at doing that but actually we then become a little bit close and we'll only look at other charities and you know that vicious rivalry that I talked about between Sue Ryder and Mary Curie and you know <laughs> actually we'll just focus on each other rather than looking at you know we have a big retail arm what are other retailers doing not necessarily just charity shops but what's happening in the big- I agree
2: Well, I agree that there's perhaps a tendency to do it, but I see lots of great examples of people kind of looking at up and out. Because I think the learning is two-way, like you said with mentoring. I've never had conversations in coaching. I've never had a conversation I've not learned something or thought something differently about. It's always two-way. And I think the same for sectors with us and as a charity sector and beyond I think there's huge learning in both directions and we we see that when we have new staff and colleagues who move between different sectors or trustees there's constant surprise about the level of professionalism the level of ambition the level of performance in our sector that we should be deeply proud of it's you know big part of the fabric of society it attracts fantastic talent makes a big dent in the universe so we've got a huge amount not just to learn but to give so being part of the kind of wider ecosystem makes a you know, huge amount of sense so many so many levels and I think also just thinking globally as well I've been thinking a lot over the last year of course as health and matters and Covid have got us to focus on health and science more than perhaps we've ever done before in our lives and for most people thinking about the global nature of collaboration and moving when we're trying to do so much with less mostly in the sector at the moment actually making your collaborations work really really hard looking for where you add unique value not being defensive about your boundaries being really clear about and confident about who you are and also who you're not that's okay as an organization or as people so yeah I've been reflecting a lot on the importance of collaboration and the value of competition sometimes but probably
1: not as much as
2: we had pre-COVID.
1: And on that collaboration point Charmaine I guess just from your recent experience because I think question will come in uh, in a moment but I we've we heard a lot about collaboration during this period you know charities are obviously struggling in resources in a number of different areas big charities small charities the whole sector has been uh, affected as the CEO of one of the biggest charities in the country are you noticing more collaboration right across the sector are you seeing examples of that more so than you would for example well I suppose you don't have the background because it's always been Covid for you at BHF. The- <laughs> it surely has but, but I mean pre-Covid yeah. Have you seen a marked increase in that? It's been a
2: lifeline, more than increase. This last year, it's been such a pleasure to get to know colleagues and chief execs from across the sector in a spirit of support rather than anything else. So um, it's a privilege to be a member of the Richmond Group, which is the chief execs of the largest health and social care charities who've come together for many years to help influence on common agenda points. And, you know, at the peak of the pandemic, we were on calls every week to share intelligence, share views on on how to approach things, support each other, both in practical terms in our jobs and for our organisations, but just as people as well, going through such a turbulent time. And I've been nothing but inspired and impressed by the openness and generosity that people have shown each other, and, you know, the humour, the support... I was saying earlier, I've got, I know you've interviewed Kate Lee and I was, uh, I love the fact you called her a celebrity CEO as well. So I've just WhatsApped her to check that she doesn't outgun me on Mariah Carey status or see what she says. <laughs> but it's that kind of connection that I think this experience has been so challenging for all of us. Mm. Small Silver Lining for me has been the spirit of collaboration, I'm the most senior level, and not just saying it, but doing it, making decisions that help ourselves collectively in lots of ways, uh, professional. it's just been fantastic, and I hope that continues long after this. And I think it will have to, because we are trying to do more with less. And I think, and under those circumstances, we have to get better at working together as a sector. I believe in competition where it engenders innovation, and it engenders you know up, helps up, up all of our games in the same way that any team sport where people are competitive within everyone helps up their own games. Great. But actually, the, the main focus and the main energy should surely be about making the most difference in the world, the biggest dent we can in the universe together.
1: And do you think you will see more mergers in the future in the charity sector? Because I think collaboration can often come to to mean a merger and, and at a time where you say resources are really tight, things are having to be restructured. Do you expect we'll see more of that in future?
2: So, I'm sure there'll be some more of that, to be honest, there's scarcity of resources. Exactly how that will play out, uh, I don't know. Actually, it's my pl- pleasure to be the chair of the Cranfield Trust, which I think I mentioned. And as part of that, it's a small organisation that marries pro bono or volunteer commercial experience with one- wonderful small charities in particular who who need kind of generally business advice. So we've been thinking a lot about that because it's probably at the for the small organisation level that this is more of an issue and thinking about what support we can put in place to help people have those conversations. I guess the reality is that so many people are under such pressure at the moment that there is a real desperation with many organisations about how to keep going. So the headspace for, I'd say, some of the discussions around what mergers could look like is limited and there's huge amount of pressure on actually just keeping going, let alone thinking strategically about that. However, there have been some really great examples of people coming together and making just sensible decisions or accelerating conversations that have been you know, happening for years. And I I think as long as we've always all collectively got on our, our minds the interests of the people here to serve, first and foremost, that's the thing driving the decision, and then, then good for people who make that choice.
0: So whilst Kenneth is off getting the drinks in, I'll just remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Do More Good Pod, or take a look at the website domoregood.uk, which is where you can sign up for the Do More Good newsletter, a reminder about new episodes, news on our latest plans, and perhaps some VIP content. Now, I'm a big fan of the like, whereas Kenneth is more of a retweet kind of guy. Either way, we'd love to hear from you with thoughts, suggestions, reviews, or just to let us know you got home okay. Anyway, he's on his way back now. It's interesting you talk about kate there and we look forward to getting that that whatsapp message coming through any second now i'm sure but she she told an interesting story about how when she joined outside society that she was waiting and waiting for them to call when they and they didn't ever call and she ended up applying for the job you've obviously as we've touched on you went back to bhf what was it about the timing was it uh, just the right moment for you did you have to give your leaving present back like kenneth how was it for you how did it come about
2: you know, I got the most beautiful leaving presents. I'm very grateful they've not asked for them back. But I'm, I'm, maybe we'll recycle them at some point in the future. Who knows? Yeah, just such a privilege to come back. As I said, BHF is a huge part of my life. It's been one third of my blooming life, not alone my working life, in terms of my, my time with it. So it really matters to me. So when Simon, my predecessor, Simon Gillespie, who I had the pleasure of working with for several years, announced his retirement it was clearly a real moment of excitement for me to think about the opportunity and a real privilege to come back it is a bit magic the people are fantastic the cause is urgent Deep personal connection it's it's yeah it was a really simple choice for me to kind of express interest in the job given it's just the best charity for sure not that I'm competitive and I don't mean that it's just I just love it frankly
0: it clearly
1: comes through I was just going to say, what was it like that first day, though, walking, walking through the doors? I'm sure there was a bit of nostalgia there about the, the red and the brand and I'm sure people around that you'd
0: worked with in the past. I came back, my director or previous director walked out of her office and said, oh, you again. And then walked
2: back in. <laughs> yeah. Had you just said it was your ninth meeting? Of the
0: <laughs> yeah, it was only 9am. Was I, it? Yeah, it I, I could understand. Yeah. I could
2: understand that reaction. <laughs> It was it was quite emotional to be honest I had that part I probably hadn't clocked as in myself as much as I thought I would mm. and, and even going so the interviews were held on site as well I kind of done all the prep logically ready very rational kind of approach knew what I was you know I'd, I'd prepared as well as I, I knew I could for it but actually crossing the threshold of the building for the first time in a few years just the wave of emotion even on interview day let alone the kind of first day coming back was quite was quite unexpected and I think that is just a—it's it, simply a reflection of how much it matters. It's—and um, that's about the people as well as the cause. It's just, uh, yeah, it's just really, really good. Coming back on first day it was amazing. 10th of February, I remember it clearly. It's very excited. Had a wonderful induction. Literally a six-month induction plan that just looked beautiful. It was a thing of beauty. So much love and care had gone into it. Been looking at it for a month. I'd done it—you know—had a pre-read. And Simon had been generous enough to give me some some time in handover. Yeah, it was that, that day, clearly a year and a bit ago now, beautiful, sunny, glorious, 2020 oh, was rolling out before us, um, but clearly the, it, the year ahead was not quite to be.
0: Because it does feel, I mean, in my experience, it does feel quite warm that you kind of, you recognise, you know, you have relationships with people, you're kind of getting back in touch with people rather than the full induction of meeting everybody. And you can just get going. You can just, you're, you're a little bit further ahead and you can get things done. Obviously, that was an advantage this year because things, as you say, just completely changed. What was the, I mean, as Kenneth says, it's difficult for you to say because you didn't know it beforehand. But what did it feel like that the impact of that was? Was it uh, Sue Ryder? It was overnight. Boom. Everything changed overnight. Was it the same for you guys at BHF?
2: Yes. So you're right that knowing the organisation and having a network of people, it was a privilege to work with some of the exec team before, was was firstly part of the reason to come back it was the people and it was an advantage in a time of immense chaos and challenge clearly I didn't know that on the 10th of February but um, it was coming fast in fact it was a, a year ago today it was the 18th of March last year in 2020 it was the last physical day we had on site before we locked down our offices and then shortly after our shops. And the scale and speed of the impact of the the lockdown restrictions on our operations at all levels, you know, on the 730 shops and stores across the UK, on the thousands of staff and tens of thousands of volunteers that we have, on every aspect, literally every aspect of what we do, our research happening in laboratories, the clinical trials we support, the way we do business just changed in a heartbeat.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that must have been a bit of a shock to, to the system uh, with that six-month induction sitting there thinking yes I'm <laughs> going to sit down and it's going to you know going to get into it and then boom here we go what were your priorities at that time Charmaine as, as a new newly appointed CEO coming into to lead one of the biggest organizations with a great people and a great culture and I think just reflecting on in hearing you talk about it every interaction I've had personally with the VHF has been really great the people have always been great so I'd certainly echo that how did you prioritize being a new CEO, engaging the, the your workforce, the people, but also reacting to what was going on with COVID?
2: So literally a year ago today, my exec team and I, we were probably the only people bar a handful in our head office, in a big distance conference room, looking at what's coming. And one of the things I know we got, we got right was we chose four priorities that we said we would stick to and be our guiding stars to kind of navigate us through it. And they were, quite simply, we do everything we could to protect our research funding and I've said, research funding commitments. We would be there for the people who needed us most, the people with heart and circulatory disease, who we knew already there would be a COVID-19 connection to people who sadly passed away or became critically unwell, because it's quite obvious there's a cardiovascular connection early. We would take a bold stance in protecting our financial position and thinking about what we, we would do to make sure we were sustainable and could keep the you know the charitable work going strong and lastly we'd support our people through the change and those four things were the kind of tenants we set down on the 18th of march and they're pretty much still the same today we've the wording a little but they've been the things that have we've hooked our decisions on our thinking on and our prioritization on over the last year we did that together we did it quickly partly because of the crisis was was, uh, was looming and it was needed quickly But partly because the consensus when um, we really sat down around the table in that big, you know, big uh, meeting room, looking at each other, thinking about what really matters most to us was actually quite clear.
0: And one of the areas that you would have looked at at that point would have been the massive retail operation that you guys have. I think it's about 750 stores around the country. That's huge. You're the biggest charity retailer in the country. And you've obviously come into this as a science background and you know about the, the, the kind of fundraising side of things and that sort of thing. Um, suddenly you've also got to oversee a massive operation that's been hugely hit by lockdowns etc. How, how is the challenge there picking that side of it up?
2: Well first we've got a fantastic retail team. They are absolutely stellar. So headed up by my colleague Mike Taylor and um, his colleague Ali. They do an amazing job with their team of running that They They've been doing it for a long time. they really high, you know, finely honed um, the kind of retail machine. we has got fantastic people leading and managing that work. But clearly closing all of the shops overnight or relatively overnight and all of the subsequent restrictions of closing and opening, the different levels of restrictions across the four nations, all of those kind of things have been a massive, massive challenge, as well as the financial burden, of course, to the organisation of of not being able to trade um, in our retail operations. That's been huge for us. It's, it's had a huge impact on our income position as well. We actually had, and it was in place before I started, that really started to gear up last February, a coronavirus response group that's headed up by our Director of People and OD, Kerry Smith. And they were already doing a fabulous job of looking at our business continuity and getting us ready for what might happen. Probably in December, Jan 2020, looking at things like our supply chains and thinking a little bit more logistically about things but by february we already had a firm handle on what we would do and how and the decision making structures kind of around that the right people in the right places to think and that group's still going i'm sure they're extremely tired i've seen i've seen routinely i know they're doing an epic job still but i don't think any of them last february thought they'd still be going and to your point on retail there were you know a big part of our operation is retail so there are lots of wonderful people in that team a virus response group CRG as we call it who are literally every week several times a week getting together to calibrate our response ready ourselves for kind of next change so it's a massive job but they're doing a brilliant job of getting it right.
1: Yeah can't have been easy at all. Charmaine I wanted to ask you about leadership and coming in as a leader and obviously you've been in senior roles at other organisations as we've talked about you grew up in the BHF you know you had leadership positions previously in there. How did your role as a leader change if at all with the impact of the pandemic did you reflect at any point and think I have to be a certain way I'm going to have to be this or, or, or that I'm just really interested
2: so I think the nature of what was required was very different as mm. as you said my my induction still in a shredder or a filing cabinet beyond the first month <laughs> I'm starting to dust it down now and get out and about so what would have been listening forming a view in a considered measured way and also sharing the, with the organisation who I was and what I was about in in a considered way. All of that for a little while was put on pause actually. And it was very much crisis management, clarity of vision, clarity of priorities and supporting people. So it was a different kind of need. So I, I would say that's one of the big differences that the plan You know, they say no plan ever survives contact with paper. This one certainly didn't. So that's probably the difference from me in what I expected it to be and how it was. The other difference, I think, probably is visibility. So in my previous role as chief operating officer, it was a large and complex team. Again, brilliant, talented colleagues who is very much a team effort and lots of complicated stakeholder relations, lots of complicated fundraising and funding, all of those kind of things. So that part was familiar, but clearly there's a singularity to being the chief exec. There's a visibility and a scrutiny about it. I think one of the things that's been quite a challenge this year, I think for many leaders, it's been how to engage with people and really connect with people and bring yourself to life as a leader when you're doing that through a screen or a Zoom call or a Teams call. The thing I miss most this year is people. Being able to be with people, really hear what matters to them in unscripted ways, all those tea point moments and you know drinks after work or just walking around the office and sensing things and actually having to rely on us using often scheduled and very limited video broadcasts has been probably the biggest challenge of the year actually beyond obviously managing the crisis and the biggest challenge I think to connecting with people and them also getting a sense of who you are when you're when you're new to an organization but the people have been brilliant and honestly they're just so thoughtful you know getting in touch checking you're all right sharing snippets letting you into their lives as well as hopefully me in reverse into their lives and back it's just been lovely to get to know people it's just probably taken a bit longer and been a bit more which I just can't wait to get back in
1: no I d- definitely get that and it, it's definitely more clinical isn't it this way I mean yeah it, you're I mean, right it's a great word James and I were talking about it and James has got so much l- less funny since we've been able <laughs> to do this face-to-face like I actually used to quite enjoy you know, I mean imagine
0: that. how funny I am face-to-face
1: <laughs> this is just
0: yeah come on
1: But we have lost, we've lost something that has been quite difficult, particularly in this podcast setting, you know, when we've, we wanted to keep an informal tone to it. And that really helped being in a, in an environment that was quite informal, where there was, you know, maybe a little bit of background noise, you know, it was like sitting down, we could get, you could see the full person's body language, and everything feels very similar. So, yeah, can certainly (laughs) understand that.
2: And it's almost like that. It's the interplay, isn't it? And it sounds like you. I'm sure he's still as funny, James.
1: Maybe, maybe, <laughs> you know?
2: I feel bad for that, but um, but it's the, the chemistry isn't and a bit of the banter, a bit yeah, of the exchange yeah. that you guys have. And I can hear that but it's it's really hard when you're doing that on screen and the flow of things is different. But mm. on the other side of things, I think a couple of brilliant things have happened. One is just the the option that remote working and video working gives for people to be more flexible in life. If you mm. can make it work. I think there's huge benefits that we need to bottle for the long term to give people choice. And the other is, I think it's opened up access to people. So I think in a couple of ways, one is that anyone can drop you an IM or, you know, have a quick quick call in a way that would be quite difficult to, 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 to organise otherwise, because you'd have to find someone or, you know, arrange to bump into them in some way, if not formal. And also the geography of things. We've got, you know, colleagues across the whole of the UK's four nations and actually geography, whether you're in a shop or in an office, not really mattering so much this last year. There's been a small upside, but it still doesn't replace um, being with people for me. I miss it enormously.
0: I was talking to a chap, a very intelligent chap called Rob, um, who was saying to me, actually, yes, we have all adapted and we've all moved into this new way of working. Actually, the crucial point is when we start to go back to normal and when we start going, being able to go back into the office, the behaviours that we've adopted over this past year, actually, those first three months where we go back to normal. That's the behaviours that we're going to adopt for much longer than just one year. You talk there about relationships and getting to know people through the screen. What, what kind of a leader are you? And what would your executive team say about their culture that you're trying to bring into the BHF?
2: Oh, what a great question. I'll have to I'm oh, John, don't tell
0: I've... him that. <laughs> <He will.
2: Especially, laughs> yeah, I
0: kind of softened you up with a bit of chat about the next three and then, and then from nowhere, it just, I know i might
2: have to. what we've got a WhatsApp group. I might What's WhatsApp then? and see what they say. So I hope, Okay, a couple of things. So one is deeply committed and driven to the work of the organisation, right, it's, it, or by the work of the organisation. So I think that they would say as well. I also think, I hope that they would call out the kind of clarity point, so really clear on what we're trying to do, a welcome clarity in my personal life as well as my professional life. My husband would tell you, always love a plan, always, you know, love to know where we're going and what we're trying to do, All so of that. I hope they'd also say that I was supportive and that we have fun working together. I think we, we've got lots of difficult things to do in the world. Having fun and supporting each other through that, I think, is, um, is really important. It's really important to me in my working life to have people I enjoy being with, to be stimulated and challenged and, and, and learn something from the people around me. I really welcome that at all levels. It's not about the exact team, but just anyone. I love love, love a challenge. What else would they say? Yeah, I hope they'd say I was challenging as well, actually, in, the, in a positive way, that I um, create an environment in which um, people can bring ideas, but also bring, uh, you know, bring challenge to the table as well to get the best out of each other. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll ask them in a while and text you if it's different.
1: Well, <laughs> well here they it? are. Here they are. And...
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: We're close, but not that close, I tell you. <laughs>
1: You've, you've talked a lot, Charmaine, about uh, continuous learning throughout your career, and, and I'm sure you've learned a lot over the last year. Quite often, CEOs are, feel like they're untouchable, you know, they're, they're, they're far away, you're running a huge organization, and I'm sure that's not something that you try to do, but it's just by the nature of being one person at the figurehead of an organization. How do you actively continue to, to learn and develop yourself in terms of your own personal development? How do you make sure that, that you continue to do that?
2: some of it's done definitely in the job and by the job so it's that learning from other people being curious about new new areas whether it's areas of innovation things that we're doing or or just learn, being curious about conversations and people and I you know in the last week alone I've met some s- astonishingly brilliant people who've just really inspired me to read a book about a particular subject or kind of understand you know where they're coming from and what they're trying to do and get under the skin of things to be honest, it kind of happens for me. It happens as I'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to get that kind of inspiration or that trigger to, to do something, read something, learn something from being with people mainly. I think that is a lovely part of my job, actually. Um, I love being with people, love listening to what matters to them, love uh, hearing their, their life experiences, you know, all their life's about. From all places and all, I know it's a privilege to book people internationally, to see people doing interesting things in the world. So I... The trigger often comes from conversations and thoughts. The hard bit's protecting a bit of time to kind of think, I think, and kind of invest in that. I'm sure it is for you guys as much as anyone. I think in this day and age, it's the same regardless of your job. You've always got to set your boundaries and protect a bit of time. Yourself, whether it's L&D or looking after yourself and your well-being, mental health, physical health, you've got to create some space for, for things that matter. So my husband's really good, married to a delightful Scotsman, have been for 20-plus years. He is fantastic at making sure, particularly in the evenings, in the week, you know, I wake up early, we start very early, Long day, we finish and that's um, go for a walk, do some gummy. He cooks wonderfully. So it's, he's really good at helping me maintain kind of boundaries as well.
0: Two things there that you touch on. One about people kind of getting to know you and you being accessible to maybe people at the BHF, but the wider sector as well. And also a bit about personal time, because yeah. you're, a, Kenneth's done his research, you're kind of a big deal on LinkedIn. You know, you see she's sharing articles and comments and this sort of thing and big followings, etc. What sort of role does social media play in your life as the CEO of the BHF?
2: I think it's critical. Two big directions. One is to listen to people. You know, in a world where you can't walk around the office and wish people happy birthday and say hello and listen, actually sensing what the organisation, your people, the organisation is your people, what matters to people and just having those moments. I think social is um, a really brilliant way to, to do that and beyond the sector as well just to engage in your networks because you're not you know no one's having lunch or coffee or meeting each other over the last year so it's a great way to kind of be part of people's lives and and know what's going on for them so i think critical but also um to say what matters to you i think as a a channel and or channels to express what matters for me to the bhf and to me personally they're really powerful so yeah i'm a huge fan i think really really useful
0: in both regards Um, we've got an episode coming out this friday so it'll be a few fridays ago by the time we release this one where amy talks about purposeful brands and she says and if you don't have an opinion on something then people can't align with you that no one can if you don't stand for anything then no one will, will be on your side it's similar with i guess with a sort of personal brand as well if you like that talk about what you're passionate about then people will follow you
2: Absolutely. I think knowing what you stand for and I think finding some ways how to, to share that in a way that's really real and authentic sometimes can be a challenge actually because you have to be comfortable with sharing some of it and your motivations and you know there's an honesty about that and a transparency about it particularly on social channels where you get a lot of engagement that you kind of have to be ready for. Yeah it's really interesting to you say that I had a brilliant conversation recently with one about audit committee members um, a lady called Claire who's just the most inspirational female leader she's chief exec of Microsoft UK and she shared some of her observations in having stepped into the chief exec role recently in a similar time frame around purposeful brand and just wonderful to see it's the same thing it's just being really clear on what matters to you in life being passionate and proud about it and then holding on to that as you with all the things that might distract or dilute your attention just holding on to those things so you can make the most impact for those in your life that you want to.
1: Sounds like Kate Lee might need to be worried about her. award. <laughs> <memorable. laughs> did she get one of those? I, I, I might be never it mentioned up. it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Did never she mention it a lot? Ah, only only every thirty or forty seconds. I did think. she now?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I haven't even mentioned my award. And I'm not going to either. I did get one, but I'm not going to tell you what it is because I'm that I'm that modest. Yeah. Well, I should. Uh, should text her on that. Did she mention it a lot?
1: You'll have to listen back, but definitely
2: yeah, at least five times.
1: So, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. And, and, and I think, that, you know, to kind of start wrapping up, it's about looking to the future. And as you said, there's the shoots of spring. Uh, we're seeing them on our morning walks. We're seeing them in probably our everyday lives, the kids going back to school. You know, we're seeing them in our businesses and our jobs and our charities, and hopefully there's a brighter future ahead. But I guess the big broad question is, what's the hopes for the future for you and for the BHF?
2: So I hope we can recover the funding that we have for our charitable work as quickly as we can. We've taken a really big dip in net income this year. Our net income has dropped by 50% and the knock-on impact on our charitable work has been immense. But I'm really proud that we've been able to keep the doors open for the very best research and talent funding proposals. That mattered enormously to us as a BHF to keep our doors open for business and the team have done a great job at that so looking forward a couple of things want to see us of course recover and recover our ability to keep that amazing life-saving research going all the support that we have for patients so the, the brilliant advocacy we do on their behalf all of that geared up I'd also like us to bottle some of the things we've learned the spirit of innovation people have done the most remarkable things you know the, whether it be online fundraising products or free post donations for our retail operation or just neat ways of staying connected and looking after each other there's a lot that is faster more effective and that generally is more is more valuable for people or easier for people because of this Looking to the future, finding ways in which we all know we're never going to go back to how it was pre-COVID, but finding ways to catch and bottle all the stuff that's good that we want to hold on to and not rewind that whilst also getting back the things we really miss, which I think for most people are people and being together actually, that I think that's gonna be really important. Mm-hmm.
0: We had a whole list of questions here. I think you just answered all of them in one. That was uh, yeah, yeah, really good, really good. The, the focus this year has all been on the, the pandemic and COVID and yeah. words we were bored of. But in terms of kind of heart disease and, and, and the effects that will have on a, a nation of people who perhaps, looking at my life, I've, I've spent the vast majority of this time at home. I've not been walking to work. I've not been out as much as I would normally have been, that sedentary lifestyle having an effect on the health of the country as a whole.
2: So a couple of things. So I think health is at the front of most people's minds at the moment more than ever before, because we've all, you know, had the fear and concern around COVID and what that means for us. I think probably we've all experienced it in different ways. I mean, there, at some extreme, some people have really gotten into fitness and exercise. It's been a big release for them and actually a chance to establish routines. And on the other extreme, people have really struggled to to balance either caring or childcare commitments and life and job and all the rest and haven't made that work and everything in between i think all of us have probably been affected negatively i would say by in one way or other but it's you know always an opportunity to kind of do things differently and so james if you are struggling we've got an amazing my step challenge they've also got you know if you want to join me in the april 100k challenge you do 100k walking or running over april consider it a challenge here here and now um
0: god i don't feel like there's no way out of this i've got to sign up haven't i well it is your ninth
2: meeting of the day so (laughs) some kind of payback but, you know, there are lovely things to do. So I think, you know, is health in our minds, of course, it is. is um, are there lots of ways you can do things that hopefully will help keep you healthy and well. In lots of ways, because exercise is brilliant for your mental health as well as your, your physical health and your heart health, of course. And, uh, do you know, for the BHF, but also lots of charities that have got wonderful, wonderful things to get involved to kind of help keep you going and um, getting out in the morning as well.
1: Yeah. James it's a really really good point and actually we we spoke about it a little bit on the, the the clubhouse thing we were talking about earlier you touched on it the inactivity i think that's you know a huge thing that we really haven't spoken about a huge amount or heard a huge amount particular around kind of lower socioeconomic groups as well and yeah. how they have been impacted and actually yeah the, the, I think the, the stats were showing at the start of lockdown that activity levels actually dropped something like 10-15% and I can't remember the exact figure but it was extreme and, yeah. and coming out of this we've got a, a big responsibility to try and get everybody back up and, he- and healthy again so I'm sure charities and, and events and everything will have a will have a part to play in that as we look to the future so
2: for sure. I think for people who are, you know, or charities and organisations that are brilliantly focused on helping people and their, their health, there's a lot of work to do, isn't there? And, um, and some great ways to get involved and brilliant support and tools and all the kind of things, as well as communities to get involved with that can help do that. So us mobilising ourselves for a better word and and helping helping people stay healthy or or get healthy is going to be really important. I also think the other thing that's going to be a really big challenge for us is just recognising how much COVID-19, the pandemic, has either directly or indirectly affected people's health beyond actually being ill itself. Mm. So we know that, for example, there's a wave of people who have suffered not because of COVID, but because their treatments or care have been displaced by the impact it's had on NHS services and treatment. And actually, getting through that backlog, actually, you know, kind of getting people treated well and, and looked after is a huge challenge for so many organisations. You've seen the cancer charities um, come together brilliantly in the last couple of weeks to talk about the scale of that issue. We have too, talking about the lives that are being lost by not getting into that backlog. And that's where the spirit, I think, of collaboration is coming through brilliantly, is us working together to say, right, how on earth with the NHS and others do we come at this and look after people and get ourselves back on track with the progress that we were making pre-COVID? And the other is just recognising that people who have had COVID often have conditions or needs that um, we're still understanding. So we're as a bhf funding research to look into both the biology of the disease but also look at the data associated with it so we can understand how it affects people better and know that a lot of people who have had covid actually have heart problems following and will need probably different kinds of care and support going forward so i'm so excited to see the kind of green shoots come the vaccination program roll out i can't wait to see our parents my husband's and my parents again we haven't seen and his parents for a year and a bit now and i haven't held my parents since you know last january so this is a long haul for all of us i know and you guys and your families as well there's a lot to do still but i know we're going to make a difference doing it as a sector for sure
1: perfect sounds like a nice way to wrap it up yeah it does yeah we're going to not let you off the hook though we do have some standard questions that we keep on discussing about changing but we haven't quite got there yet it's been about about three years isn't it yeah Yeah, we talk about everything else but we accept changing our standard quick fire questions at the end but they seem to work quite well so James do you want to go for the first one
0: I'll go first yeah so if you could transport back in time and meet your 20 year old self what piece of advice would you give and why
2: killer question I'd probably say relax a little. So when I was 20, I was doing my degree in biochemistry, spending a bit of time in Australia. I won't bore you with it, but snorkeling for sea snails to look at whether their venom could help people with stroke is the best placement ever. Getting paid for it as a student, amazing. <laughs> I would say just to probably relax, to enjoy the moments a little bit more. I think that's something I've learned as I've gotten a bit older.
1: Take nice. them in. Take them in when you experience them. Yeah, good. Can you tell us about one life hack, or a productivity tool, or a habit, or a skill? something that you've taught yourself recently that you think everybody needs to know about
2: recently oh my goodness um well I'm a huge fan of apps and tech and help keep the world organized my biggest probably life hack is the zero email inbox so keeping the inbox empty what (laughs) not always achievable but Honestly, if you never empty it, you're never you're never getting through it right. So you have keeping it as uh, an empty set. I can see James nodding. So I think Kenneth, yeah. you might be on your own here. I'm, I'm yeah. definitely
0: yeah. I I was going away on holiday. This pretty a couple of years ago, I was going away on holiday, and I stupidly made a tweet. It was the day, it was the Friday before I left or something, and I said, I'm nearly there. Inbox zero. I'm, I'm within reach of it. I had two or three to go, and suddenly was just flooded just for every this is the kind of esteem that I'm held with within the sector that just loads of people just emailed me rubbish just to fill the bloody inbox back up with and yeah. I had to go through can and I
2: change my answer because if that happens to me I'm in real trouble
0: for <laughs> yeah, so, uh... exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, final question for you then so as a podcast that is focused around people doing more good what's your favorite story or inspiring individual who you have met along your journey or recently who has done something good for others?
2: No brainer here whatsoever. In fact, I've got a, her photograph on my shelf behind me that your, your listeners won't be able to see. Her name's Joan Willett. She's 104 years old. She was inspired by Sir Tom this summer and had in her 80s a heart procedure and surgery where she recognised that the BHF had been part of making that surgery possible and credits that with giving her decades more life. And this summer, she, for her 104th birthday, walked up and down a hill outside her care home in Hastings, and she raised over £50,000 for the BHF. I inspired by Sir Tom. She said, if he can do it, I can do it. And I, I love her, which is why her photographs um, literally framed on my shelf, because she's a reminder that we can all make a difference. It doesn't matter where you are, what you've got, or what you're doing you can all make a dent in the universe. So Joan Willett,
1: my hero of 2020 for sure. Let's get, let's get her on, James.
0: Let's get
1: her on. James. <laughs> <laughs> <That sounds> brilliant. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, I think we'll probably wrap it up there. Look, we just want to say thank you again for, for your time. We we really appreciate it. I think it's it, it's great to show that you're accessible, that you're authentic, and it's been great to hear about your your journey into the sector and and what you're experiencing and your hopes for the future. So, any final thoughts or anything that you you'd like to leave the audience with? Apart
2: from saying thank you to you both, I've really enjoyed the conversation and a moment to reflect in a really busy year as well. So, apart from that, saying thank you, I'd say look forward to the 100K challenge, James, in April. <laughs> I'm, all
0: in, yeah. I'm, I'm all in. Yeah, you're all in. Sign up and after this. That.
2: Yeah, yeah, and good luck for your tenth meeting of the day. I hope it goes as well <laughs> as
0: <this. laughs> brilliant brilliant yes i like this you you stole my joke you stole my end jab and saving that one up i've got it scribbled at the top here is my fight yeah there
1: we go james can you come up with anything else as your final joke no
0: that's just that's been brilliant i've really enjoyed the past hour that's been just as we thought the ninth was the best of the day apologies to the other eight all right let's wrap it up there then thank you very much both. see you soon cheers okay If anyone wants to kind of follow up and actually enjoyed this thing where can they find us well we're on twitter kenneth at do more good pod instagram at do more good pod have we gone multi-channel and even gone to youtube we have but you can find all those videos on the website do more and if you want to contact us by email please
1: use contact at do